0: It's a real pleasure being here. Uh, How many of you have been following the news? Raise your hand. If you've been following the news uh, about AlphaGo playing the world champion at the board game Go, uh, that's Lee Sedol. Um, Of course, uh, this is from the first match. Uh, And I just want to play this clip before I get on with my talk. So... Uh. (coughs) He's famous for fighting and creative style, and I think uh, that made this game uh, extremely exciting and uh, very tense. So uh, we're very, very excited about this uh, historic moment, and uh, uh, you know we're very pleased with uh, how AlphaGo uh, performed. I don't know. Actually, I want to play that because it's quite interesting. See what he says. Oh, Slow so, internet connection. <clears throat> uh, let's give it a shot. Um, but otherwise, I'll start with my talk in a minute. Okay. <laughs> I was very surprised. In fact, I'd not thought I would lose. Um, and in fact, he was very confident he was going to win. And most um, Go experts were were very confident that that there was no way the computer was going to beat AlphaGo. Um, I mean, sorry, AlphaGo was going to beat the world champion. Uh, so it's it's really a historic time. I mean, of course, Go isn't, you know, the summit of artificial intelligence, but it is a landmark achievement. It's something that people thought was was very difficult. They thought it was going to be, you know... Ten years into the future, uh, the AI researchers. Many people thought, "Well, this is impossible." But you know, people thought chess was impossible as well. But of course, we had um, Gary Kasparov beaten in 1997. But this is quite different in some ways. And um, you know, at, at the end, if uh, we have time for questions, I can address that. Uh, let me dive into uh, my talk, which is sort of not about this. Hold on. <laughs> not yet. That was a sneak preview. Okay? So my talk is about intelligence and learning in brains and machines. So what's intelligence? And what's learning? Can we build computers uh, and robots that learn? And will they ever be as intelligent or more intelligent than humans? So these kinds of questions have fascinated uh, researchers for many decades since the very earliest uh, days of uh, computing. In fact, maybe even before physical computers were built, people were thinking about these kinds of questions. And our, our story is gonna start with Alan Turing, who's a brilliant uh, mathematician and a pioneer of computing. Um, and he provided what is still a widely used definition of intelligence. Of course, Alan Turing is probably best known for his work During the war at Bletchley Park, on the um, German Enigma and Lorentz machines, which were major contributions to uh, winning the war. Um, But he also laid down the mathematical foundations of computing. He defined computing in terms of simple operations that a so called universal computer could do. Uh, And here's an artist's depiction of a universal computer. And it's basically a a machine that has a tape, it's a simple machine that has a tape, and all it can do is read and write ones and zeros onto this tape. Um, Here is a universal computer built out of Lego. Um, So you can make universal computers out out of all sorts of things. And here are a bunch of other universal computers. So essentially, um, every computing device that you have uh, is, in fact one of these universal computers um, and uh, it's, it's equivalent to Turing's universal computer. These are all basically mathematically equivalent objects. Some of them might be you know faster and have you know seemingly nicer interfaces and fancier graphics and so on but, but computationally mathematically they can all do the same thing. And this is why universal computers are now uh, called uh, Turing machines. We call them Turing machines. So, of course, um, we're talking, the reason we're talking about Alan Turing here is that uh, he had an answer to our first question, what is intelligence? Well, let's be clear, he didn't claim to know what intelligence was, but he had uh, a test uh, by which we could perhaps figure out if computers had become intelligent. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with this, and that is the, the Turing, what we call the Turing test now. And it consists of um, a computer and a human um, answering questions behind, you know, some barrier uh, from a human. And this is the human judge, and the human judge has to figure out which one is the computer and which one is the human. Um, And uh, if the judge can't tell which is the computer and which is the human based on questions asked, then uh, you would say that the computer has passed the Turing test. Um, you could say the judge has failed the Turing test, maybe, but um, it's, just, it's successfully fooled humans into uh, thinking that it's a human. Um, it's a little bit like this uh, New Yorker cartoon where a dog is telling a, another dog, on the Internet, nobody knows you're a dog, right? So you know the dogs, can, <laughs> the dogs can fool people, then they pass the, uh, the human test as well. Okay, Of course, answering questions um, isn't all there is to intelligence, uh, to human intelligence. We interact with the world through our senses, uh, we uh, learn to manipulate objects, we do all sorts of crazy acrobatics and sports and achieve amazing feats of intelligent behavior that no robot or computer uh, can do yet. Um, so, so what is intelligence? Um, Turing really launched this sort of uh, thinking about artificial intelligence along with some other people. Oh, what's that? Oh, sorry. That's probably the audio. Okay, <laughs> that's, uh, that's the internet catching up with this lecture. <laughs> so we may be about to crack artificial intelligence, but we haven't cracked bandwidth uh, in the lecture rooms here. Okay, so, uh, so Turing tests... Um, uh, you know, made, made it's, a, it's an interesting concept for thinking about intelligence um, and for evaluating progress. But what are we up against? What, I mean, we, AI researchers, what are we up against when we think about intelligence? Well, we're up against this thing, right? So if we, if we want to build a, a computer machine as intelligent as a human brain, um, we have to understand a little bit about how intelligent is the human brain. And let's think about some numbers um, the human brain has about 100 billion uh, neurons in it, um, and each neuron has a thousand to ten thousand connections with other neurons, and they're organized in incredibly complicated wiring diagrams. So this is a wiring, a recent wiring diagram of the visual system, where you know the retina is down here and you have lots of different levels of processing going on, doing all sorts of things. This is our understanding of what's happening in in the human brain. And now this sounds um, very complex, right? It it sounds like, you know, we're never going to get there if if it's such a complicated system. Um, But, of course, a machine as intelligent as a human uh, does not have to be built out of the same... Uh, components. It doesn't have to be built the same way as a human brain is built. Um, Just like an airplane doesn't have to have feathers and flapping wings, okay? So um, what we're trying to uh, think about is if we want to build a machine with capabilities like a human brain, well what what is the function of the human brain? What are we trying to (coughs) emulate in terms of the function of the human brain? There are clearly many designs um, for achieving the same function. So let's think about that question. So what is the function of the human brain? So any thoughts out there on this? Pattern matching. Pattern matching, that's interesting, yeah. There, there are no wrong answers. There, well, there might be some wrong answers, but, yeah. Interpreting data. Interpreting data, that's another good answer. Making connections. Making connections, yeah. Solving, Solving, problem. alive. Solving problems. What was that? Keeping itself alive. <laughs> Ma- keeping itself alive? That's another good one. I think these are all great answers. Um, I'm going to offer a, an answer which is not um, mutually exclusive with all these things, but it's sort of an, a nerdy way of thinking about what a brain does. Okay? And it's a, it's a way of thinking about what the brain does that we can quantify. So I hope you'll find this interesting. So, um, so one of the ways of thinking about the brain is as an information processing organ. It's an organ that processes information and, of course, it controls actions and so on with that information. Um, so it takes information from the senses, changes its state uh, by laying down memories and so on, and produces actions that control the body, um, like, for example, speech and you know, moving your arms around and things like that. So now I've used the word information and I want us to be precise about the meaning of this word. So what is information? Well, information is the reduction of uncertainty, and uncertainty is measured in bits. One bit corresponds to the answer to a yes or no question, which has equal probabilities between yes and no. So uh, one bit of information is the reduction in uncertainty from uh, a yes-no question with equal chances to uh, you know, certain knowledge about that. So if the brain is an information processing system, how much information does it process and store? And that seems a sensible question to ask. In other words, how much information is there in the brain about the outside world? Any guesses? We're gonna do a calculation. Okay. <laughs> but you might think, you might think, wow, it's got 100 billion neurons, you know? And so there are many different configurations. It must be vast. Or you could even think, well, think about each neuron. Each neuron has, you know, it's a complicated thing. Neurons are not very simple. They have ion channels and different chemicals involved and neurotransmitters and different concentrations. You can drill down to the level of molecules and try to think of all the configurations of all of that. But actually, that's not the right way of thinking about this. There are only two ways information can get into the brain, from our genes and from our senses. If we think of the brain in the outside world, how can information, it doesn't matter how complicated it is on the inside, how can information get into the brain? Well, um, it can come in through our genes. So the human genome, or DNA, is a sequence of 3 billion base pairs. Each base pair... Um, has uh, you know can be one of four nucleotides, and so it's one of four choices. There are three billion of them. Um, four choices at most is two bits. Okay, by our definition of information, three billion times two is six billion bits. Six billion bits is less than one gigabyte. Okay. So our, bra- our DNA is about a USB stick. It's, a, it's not even a very powerful USB stick. It's a USB stick from a bunch of years ago. So all genomics is great and all that, but let's get serious. And that's a gross overestimate of the DNA's variability because it's not that we're all randomly varying. You know, we'd all, be, we'd all be extinct and dead if we were all randomly varying at every position in our genome. There are only, out of the three billion positions, I think there might be only three million uh, at most where there is actually considerable variability between people. So that's an upper bound. Okay, so it can't come in, not a lot can come in from our genes, uh, so it's got to come in from our senses. And the lion's share, um, well, do, it does come from our senses, uh, mostly from vision and audition. We're not very olfactory animals you know, compared to rats, let's say. So mostly vision and audition. But how much? Okay, we can do a little uh, back of the envelope calculation for that as well. Um, Life is like watching a DVD movie. All right, this is gonna be my calculation. Uh, We can estimate our sensory experience as uh, watching a DVD movie that lasts our whole life. And a DVD can be compressed into about 400 megabytes an hour, quite reasonably. Maybe a little bit lossy, but that seems all right. Um, And let's say you're awake for 16 hours a day, uh, 365 days a year, say for around 80 years. Um, uh, Well, that's 200,000 gigabytes, which sounds like a lot. It's 200 terabytes. But in fact, it's actually hard to argue that we're storing everything that comes in through our senses, so you don't remember, you know, every single uh, word of every book that you ever read, or the pattern on the carpet here, or you know, the color of the jumper of the person who was sitting next to you on the bus seventeen years ago, right? <laughs> so you don't remember all that. It's not all being stored, and in fact. Um, you know, this, this is dubious. I mean, 200 terabytes is, is probably a gross overestimate. And I would say, roughly speaking, let's be generous to the brain and say 1% of every bit that's coming in through our visual and auditory senses is actually being stored. So what would that be? If it was 1%, it would be 2 terabytes. If we wanted to say it was 10%, it would be 20 terabytes but I think 1% is already an overestimate. So what's 2 terabytes? Well, that's a hard drive. Okay? For, uh, you can buy one for much less than 100 pounds. Um, so if we're going to build an intelligent computer, we're not limited by the amount of memory storage. So what are we limited by? And we haven't achieved this yet. We have plenty of hard drives and USB sticks, but we don't have intelligent computers yet. Um, so what's what's wrong? And I would argue um, that uh, well, one of the things that limits us—you know, there are probably many things that limits us that limit us. But one of the things is a, is actually a proper understanding of intelligence and learning. And for that, we need theories. And theories are going to help us understand the function of the human brain. And they also help us understand intelligent learning computers. So some of you might wonder, well, what would those theories look like? And, you know, if you ask different kinds of people, neurobiologists and so on, or geneticists, they will all have different ways of expressing their theories. But I'm going to argue that the theories, um, at some level, they might look like this. Okay? So they might be expressed in terms of the language of mathematics. And why mathematics? Well, mathematics is just a very precise way of expressing theories um, where we can make predictions from those theories and, um, you know, test those predictions to see whether they make sense or not. And in fact, um, I'm going to uh, focus on two uh, mathematical ideas that have had a profound impact on our theories of both biological and artificial intelligence. The first one, first idea is due to Um, It's known as Bellman's equation, the first equation, and it's due to Richard Bellman, uh, who is an American engineer. And Bellman's equation tells us how both uh, biological organisms and artificial machines could take actions or make decisions so as to maximize some long-term reward. Okay. So the best way of thinking about Bellman's equation is um, through this very simplified decision-making problem. Okay, consider uh, this lab rat, this happy lab rat who's living in a maze and um, is trying to navigate in the maze to uh, get some reward in the form of the cheese, okay? So this is just a sort of simplification of all decision-making problems, all right? The rat has some state, which is where it is in the maze. It can take some actions, Um, moving, say, uh, left, right, forward, or backwards. And um, at every position in the the maze, at every state, there's either an immediate reward or no reward at all. Okay? And the goal of the RAT to solve this problem is going to be to maximize its long-term reward. And so let's make a distinction between um, long-term reward and immediate reward. Immediate reward is when the rat is uh, munching on the cheese. Okay, that's the immediate reward. The long-term reward is what it, as it's making a sequence of actions, if it ever gets to the cheese, then it gets some long-term reward. So it's sort of like you, know, you get immediate reward from maybe spending your money on something and you feel good. You might get long-term reward uh, by investing it Watching, it, you know, watching the number and the bank or whatever go up and then spending it later. Okay. And this can be formalized in terms of Bellman's equation. So here is Bellman's equation and probably most of you don't like looking at things like this, actually love looking at things like this. They make me very happy. But I'm going to um, basically describe this in words to you because it's a really important idea. So here is how we can rewrite this equation. It says the value of a state, that is the sort of long-term expected reward that you get from a state, is gonna be the immediate reward of that state plus the maximum over actions that um, the agent can take, uh, summing over next states that it could reach by taking those actions. So obviously if the rat moves forward, it goes forward in the maze, that's the next state that it would reach. The probability of reaching that next state, because you know, some worlds are not as deterministic as a maze, like you, know, you might take an action, but the world might be a bit random, so you might not end up exactly where you thought you would end up. That's why we have the probability of the next state times the value of the next state. So this is an interesting equation. It says that how good a particular state is, this is this value, depends on the immediate reward and some stuff, then depends on the value of the next state. So, when we look at this, if the immediate reward is for the cheese to be here, the value of the state right next to this cheese is actually quite high. There's no cheese there, there's no immediate reward there, but if the robot takes the best action, that's why we have this maximum here, if the robot takes the best, not robot, sorry, rat, (laughs) rat or robot, or a robotic rat, if you want, um, takes uh, the best action, then uh, he will get the cheese in one time step. Okay. So when you compute the value of all these states, you see that the value basically follows the path in the maze that most quickly gets you to the reward. And so, therefore, the problem of decision making is just compute the value and then follow your you know follow you, follow the value with your nose until you get to. Um reward. And by the way, all that AlphaGo stuff, well this is one of the key equations, Bellman's equations is one of the really key equations that underlie how AlphaGo managed to play Go uh, and uh, beat the world champion. uh, As we know today, four to one in a five game championship. (coughs) So the rat in the maze is really a parable for all decision-making, including the kind of decision-making we do. It's not just about robots and rats. It's also about us. So should you buy that flashy car um, or save your money and buy a house later? That's a decision problem. You know, Should you mow the lawn or relax and read the Sunday paper? Um, should you eat this mushroom that you found in the forest? Right. All these questions are questions of you know, uh, decisions, rewards, long-term values. And just think about it, if if we just had, you know, if we could enumerate all the states in our own lives, and we had a big enough computer, and we knew our reward function in life, and we had a big enough computer to solve that problem for us, to solve Bellman's equations, then we would know how to live uh, as happily as possible, given our circumstances, okay? So it's kind of an interesting, profound equation. Um, It helps us understand human decision-making, animal decision-making. This is used in in psychology and neuroscience to understand animals. And it also helps us build robots that can make intelligent autonomous decisions or, um, you know, uh, game-playing algorithms that play Go or um, checkers or chess or so on. Okay, so we need this important equation. That's the first equation I want to tell you about. The second equation I want to tell you about is due to um, Reverend Thomas Bayes. Um, so Bayes was an 18th century uh, English non-conformist minister who had a keen interest in mathematics and... Um, his greatest work was published posthumously um, in 1764 and read before the Royal Society. And in this, he, he, he studied sort of um, basics of, of probability theory. And everybody always, by the way, everybody always shows this image of, uh, of Thomas Bayes, um, but then somebody uh, who knows about how nonconformist ministers used to dress in the 1700s pointed out that this could not possibly be Thomas (laughs) Bayes. So we all show this image, and we all say Thomas Bayes when we show this image, but this poor chap is probably not Thomas Bayes. But there you have it. Um, So what's Bayes' equation? So Bayes' equation or Bayes' rule, it looks like this. Again, I like looking at things like this, but you might not. So I'm going to rewrite it for you. in a more palatable form. So it lays down the basics of modern probability and statistics, and this is the way I'm gonna write it down. So um, Bayes' rule, what it allows us to do is to reason about hypotheses given data. And the way it works is um, that you have the P's mean probabilities, okay? So before you observe the data, you have some <coughs> probabilities over different hypotheses. And that represents your state of knowledge, your uncertainty about different hypotheses. And then um, for ev- any hypothesis, um, there's a probability of the data that's observed. And Bayes' rule says you multiply these two, and then you normalize by summing over all hypotheses. The same thing as, as above. So these things normalize to one. And from that, you get the probability of the hypothesis given the data. So really, imagine that you're a scientist and you're trying to evaluate several hypotheses on the basis of some experimental data. This would tell us, uh, so before you do the experiment, you consider the different hypotheses and you sort of place your bets mentally on, well, I think this is more likely, maybe this is Less likely, maybe this is very impossible, but possible. And this is just going to be impossible. Okay. So you put your bets down, in a sense, and then you do the experiment. You collect the data, and then you evaluate it under the different hypotheses. And then you can form your new um, uh, beliefs about the hypotheses. And like Bellman's equation, the importance of Bayes' rule goes well beyond uh, any single field of science, engineering, or, or statistics. So think of the problem of visual perception. When you open your eyes, you look around the world, um, how do you know what's out there? So how many of you have seen this, uh, this image? It's a very classical image. Raise your hand if you've seen it. Okay, whoever raised their hand cannot answer this question. <laughs> um, but if I told you there is a Dalmatian in this image... Um, How many of you who hadn't seen it before can spot the Dalmatian? Yeah? For those of you who are still having trouble, um, well, let's start with there's a tree here, it seems. This might be the head of the Dalmatian. These these might be the legs here. Can you see it now? This is the body, etc. So this is an extreme image. This is the kind of thing you find in a psychology textbook. But actually, the very act of perceiving things in the real world is constantly a problem of inferring what's out there, forming hypotheses about what's out there in the world uh, from the data that we receive from our organs, and you know, in particular our senses, our eyes and our ears. And um, many researchers really seriously think that whatever the brain is doing at some level, um, maybe not at the level of individual neurons, but at some level, there is some computation going on that's doing Bayes' rule on images and sounds and so on to to actually perceive things, okay? So it's it's an interesting way of thinking about cognition as well. Here's another example, just for fun, of uh, an image that can be interpreted in many different ways. There are three of them, really. Um, you can have the, you have the Mexican musicians, um, the cup, and of course the loving couple uh, looking at each other. All right, so these are the two ideas I wanted to get across. Um, so if we wanted to build uh, intelligent systems, we need to use Bayes' rule at some level, um, to endow our systems with the ability to form hypotheses and, uh, you know, perceive the world. And, uh, you know, Bayes' rule also forms the, uh, the basis of our understanding of learning. So when you observe some data, you learn something about the possible hypotheses out there. And this process of refining the probabilities over different hypotheses is essentially a form of learning so what 's happened here is this was your state of knowledge before you observed the data, and then you apply this equation based on the data. this is your state of knowledge after observing the data, and you 've learned something basically you've refined the hypotheses that are plausible um, and actually you know this you can build a whole theory of uh, of learning systems based on this, and Bayes rule is is part of. I mean, not not actually a huge component, but also part of the sort of reasoning that went behind um, the AlphaGo system and other systems that are trying to do artificial intelligence. Um, so, uh, so I want to now come on to the field of machine learning, which is really what uh, what what I work on, and what um, underlies a lot of the things that we're very used to seeing. And a lot of the things that we're, you know, both very comfortable with, because we use them every day, and also some of the things that we hear about in science fiction movies that are probably never going to happen. But um, what is this? So machine learning is uh, this interdisciplinary field focusing on both the mathematical foundations, like I've been trying to describe, and the practical application of systems that learn from data. And uh, I've tried to explain some of the theoretical basis of this, um, but uh, you know, what does this have to do with the real world? Okay, so where does this actually really impact um, us in our daily lives? And in fact, it's um, starting to become hugely relevant uh, in particular because we're living in a kind of information revolution. So we're in an era of abundant data, um, and this is everywhere in society. We have you know web, social networks, everything is sort of driven by data, mobile networks. Even governments are releasing lots of data. Uh, we have digital archives. Um, the sciences have been transformed by data. Um, so it's not, you know, the model of a scientist basically writing in a lab notebook or something like that is um, out of date a lot of science now generates vast amounts of data and even the scientific literature is growing at a tremendous rate so we've got a lot of data out there and the business world as well is sort of sitting on massive amounts of data and trying to figure out how to you know extract value from that data so um, uh, we need tools for modeling searching visualizing and understanding large data sets and you know machine learning as I've sort of Briefly described to you is both a way of thinking about theories of uh, intelligent, you know, animal, human, and artificial uh, learning systems, but it's also very, very useful for practical things that um, involve uh, analyzing data. So, what are these things? What are, are um, you know? What are some of the things that uh, depend on machine learning technology? So. Um, Automatic speech recognition, for example, is one of them, and we're all now, I think, used to interacting with our smartphones by talking to them. And that technology, as, as well as machine translation and dialogue systems, is uh, driven by uh, machine learning. Um, computer vision, so, you know, object recognition, face recognition, handwriting recognition, etc., so have you, you know, have you ever wondered how that little rectangle appears around faces every time you point your camera at, at a scene with faces in it? Well, that technology didn't exist. And then you know, a bunch of years ago, somebody came up. You know, there was a Viola Jones algorithm, a b- bit of machine learning, that learned to detect faces. And then that got implemented in almost every camera. And so now we're just kind of used to the fact we're like, what's wrong with my, what's wrong with my phone? It's not putting a box around. Uh, you know, people's faces. Well, it's not a trivial problem. That was only solved a few years ago with some machine learning. and Now people are setting their sights um, quite a bit higher than that. They're trying to do things like this, um, which is image captioning. So the idea is, you know, wow, wouldn't it be amazing if you could give an image to a machine and it could automatically give you a caption in text, like, man in black shirt is playing guitar. And in fact, this is outputs of an image captioning system that came out about a year ago. Construction worker or in orange Safety Vest is working on road. That's the computer interpreting the pixels in this image and producing text. doesn't always work this well. <laughs> these are, you know, I, I, I would say these are hand-picked, very nice examples. Uh, And if you're a a scientist and a skeptic, you kind of dig deeper. But it's still pretty impressive. I mean, you know, I could be critical and say these are hand-picked examples, but you know, we should also be in awe of the fact that it is even possible to do this, even a little bit. Boy is doing backflip on wakeboard. Maybe it's not a wakeboard, maybe it's a trampoline, but come on. It is a computer after all, all right? Okay, so, uh, and I've mentioned face detection already. Um, we've got things like scientific data analysis. So analyzing your genomic data, you know, if, you, if we're excited about getting our USB stick to be analyzed, um, well, it's not going to be a person reading 3 billion base pairs and figuring out what, you know, predispositions to diseases we have. It's going to be a computer doing that analysis. And here is a great example. This is a robot scientist um, that's not the robot scientist. The <laughs> robot scientist is behind him. Okay? And the robot scientist was a system that was developed that basically um, does experiments, biological experiments, forms hypotheses, uh, and then decides which experiment to do next, then does the next experiment, refines its hypotheses, etc. And the robot scientist discovered a few interesting biological facts. And this is a, a great line of work there. Um, so recommender systems is another thing we're all very used to, but you know we should wonder how does this work and uh, you know it's, it's, it's a bit of machine learning. It's, it's analyzing massive amounts of data with patterns of behaviors by uh, you know people and what kinds of things they tend to buy together. Autonomous vehicles, um, so this is in the news all the time, And the cleverness isn't in the vehicle itself. I mean, this is probably some bog-standard vehicle that they've souped up with sensors. The cleverness isn't in the sensors, either. The sensors we've had, you know, they're good things, but we've had them for a few years. Uh, A lot of the advance is in the machine learning. So for example, if you want a vehicle that's going to drive around, it better have a pretty good pedestrian detector. And in Cambridge, it better have a good cyclist detector as well. so these things are machine learning algorithms that are running on the vehicles. And if it's actually going to be steering, it's gonna be running Bellman's equation at some point trying to make decisions. You know, should I press on the brake, because I've got the yellow light, or should I go through it? Hopefully it'll press on the brake, right? <laughs> so these are all decision-making uh, problems. And you know, we hear a lot about it in the news now, and it is really, you know, it seems like it's really happening. Um, but people have been working on it for a long time. So this is a slide from, I uh, think, around 1989. This is a famous system called Alvin. Alvin drives 70 miles per hour on highways, and that must have been really scary in 1989. I would not want to be anywhere close to Alvin, the driving uh, robot, in 1989 when it was driving 70 miles per hour. Uh, but nowadays, I think they're, uh, they're actually quite safe and maybe a lot safer than humans. Um, so, uh, robotic football, um, you know, this is uh, Sony's uh, iBo robots playing uh, football matches, and it's incredibly cute to watch. Um, so we're going to just pause and watch it, because there's nothing cuter than little robot dogs <laughs> trying to play football. Um, <laughs> I love the way they wag their tails when they're excited. This is from a bunch of years ago, actually, so um, things have improved. This is completely autonomous. Obviously, there's no person with a joystick or anything. These robots are looking around and trying to decide what to do. (laughs) Yay! What happened there? (laughs) Um, and this is a uh, work by my colleague, uh, Carl Rasmussen, um, here in engineering. And uh, it might not look that impressive, but let me explain what this is actually doing. It's learning to balance a pole. And he's got a demo, um, which he's building now, where the robot is learning to ride a unicycle, which is a lot harder than this. This was from a few years ago. But the interesting thing is that what you're watching is the sum total of the computer's experience with this. So it's basically going to... uh, It doesn't know anything about poles. You don't plug in the equations. It just sort of senses things. Uh, It senses the kind of angle and so on, and it knows that what it wants is sort of reward, its immediate reward. This is using Bellman's equation and Bayes' rule, both very much together. There's uncertainty about this world. (laughs) It's trying things out so it can learn about, you know, uh, its actions moving left and right and whether it's going to manage to balance or not. And this is the sum total of this experience. It's sort of trying to learn. And um, it's, uh, it's very different than robots that are programmed in factories these days where there is really no learning going on. And we could apply this to any system, systems that really are... Uh, quite um, messy where we don't have a lot of sensors and the sensors are noisy. So it's looking like it's sort of getting there. Um, Come on. Let's see if you can do it. Yeah, not too bad. And basically it falls over after two and a half seconds because each trial is just two and a half seconds long. So... It managed to balance for a little bit there. Okay. Let's see. All right, pretty good. Well done. Okay. And now you can do things like annoy it. <laughs> it's going to get very upset soon. Okay, then of course we have you know, this um, momentous uh, sort of event that's happened this week, which is computers beating humans at the game of Go. Um, and if you have been following what DeepMind has been doing, um, of course DeepMind is a great AI startup based in London, which got acquired by Google. Um, last year they, were, uh, they managed to get uh, a single system to learn to play uh, something like 53 different Atari games, and on about half of them it was at at superhuman levels, meaning better than uh, you know better than a, a good human player. Um, and people use these things in financial prediction and automated trading. Whether you like it or not, computers are making trading decisions at the millisecond level and trying to learn to find patterns in this kind of data, um, and. Uh, there's just a tremendous number of applications of this. So one of the things that, um, that I'm very excited about, and I'll spend just a couple of minutes talking about this, is this project that we're doing on something we're calling the automatic statistician. So you probably don't want to see this slide, but this is just Bayes' rule written out again. So we're using these ideas to build a system uh, that tries to address the following problem. The problem is that Data are now ubiquitous, as I was mentioning, and there's great value from understanding this data and building models and making predictions. But the problem is there aren't enough data scientists, statisticians, and machine learning experts out there. So can we automate this? Can we develop a system that learns and discovers models from data? So we built a system called the automatic statistician, which it takes in data. It searches over different possible models using these ideas like Bayes' rule and a bit of Bellman's equation and so on. And then, interestingly, what it does is it, when it finds a model, it actually generates um, a report in human language, in English, with plots and diagrams and so on, trying to explain the patterns that is found in the data. So, is this very different from the big neural networks that underlie um, Google's DeepMind approach? Because those are amazing, but they're very difficult to interpret. And here what we have is a machine learning system that is uh, talking to you in English, in a sense. It's producing it's producing text that could pass off as a report that you know a data scientist or a data analyst would have produced. So um, that's the kind of thing that we're working on. And there, there are a tremendous number of really wonderful things that we can do with this, but what's the future going to look like? Um, is it going to give us, you know, these uh, friendly recycling um, Disney Wally kind of robots? Um, of course, what the media likes to show is this kind of image of evil killer machines, like the Terminator. Um, or this sort of hyper-intelligent but emotionally flat machine like the 2001's HAL. Um, So what's it going to be? Of course, here I can only speculate, Um, but there's some trends that are already uh, playing out. So uh, we already have brain-computer interfaces, and... We're going to have more adaptive neuroprosthetics, systems that learn to interface with our brains and bodies um, to help people communicate and control their body and move. Um, I've already talked about uh, things like the robot scientists, sort of revolutionizing scientific discovery by having humans and machines working together to discover things. Um, we're going to have personal assistants and toys um, and I think You know, we already have lots of sort of robotic toys, but these are going to be kind of uh, more uh, interactive, more intelligent. Um, Of course, there are going to be many military applications of machine learning and robotics. Um, And in fact, the whole um, artificial intelligence community is really trying to mobilize to, um, to ban the use of artificial intelligence in lethal autonomous weapons, just like we have international treaties banning the use of chemical warfare, we think that it might be possible to basically um, put in treaties that we don't want drones, for example, making uh, decisions to kill people autonomously. Okay, um, But this sort of thing may be possible. Um, we have uh, access to vast amount of human uh, knowledge and um, you know we'd like to have systems where you can ask questions in any language and get answers back virtually instantaneously. Um, so these are a few examples of the kinds of things that we might see. So um, let's ask this question. So will computers ever be as intelligent or more intelligent than humans? Well, first of all, I think this, is, this question is actually flawed. Um, intelligence is just a vague word, and it stands for a huge range of different abilities that we have. And in some ways, we already have computers that are more intelligent in some way than us at various things, like, for example, you know, multiplying two large numbers or something like that, that your calculator does. That's a form of intelligence, and computers are already smarter than us at that or, say, navigating in a city that you've never been to, um, or, uh, you know, playing various games, remembering trivia, you know, all sorts of things like this. So um, so we should be thinking about different abilities that we have, and I don't see any reason computers can't do um, almost anything humans can do, uh, and potentially better. Um, but... Uh, We should obviously think about the consequences of this in the long term. But I think in the near term, the vast amounts of data that we have and the power of intelligent machines um, really provides us with lots of tremendous opportunities for bringing a lot of great benefits to society. And that's what we should be working on and thinking about. So thank you.